Well, does your life feel busy? I feel as I ask you that, that I know the answer already. Do you nod when someone describes life as like being on a treadmill that you just can't get off? Or do you feel that for you maybe life feels a bit like a big game of trivial pursuit, that you're just trying to entertain yourself with the latest gadget, fashion, celebrity gossip, sporting game, movements in the property market or holiday planning? If you could answer yes to any of those questions, I wonder if it's because you're walking to a cultural norm that says life is about striving to get ahead. We're commonly taught that, aren't we? We're commonly, you know, you want to do well, work hard at school, do well at school, get a job or study and do well in that so you can get the house and everything else That's sort of how life is in our culture. We strive to get ahead. It's a common view, but it's doomed because as we're going to see in Ecclesiastes 3 today, God's set up things so that striving to get ahead won't ultimately work. And there's a suggestion here in Ecclesiastes 3 of what actually works better. So I've got two points that I hope is going to help us appreciate the insights of the teacher in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 15 tonight. First is to admit to yourself that God has arranged things so striving won't work. And secondly, start enjoying life as the gift God intends it to be. So thinking of this first point about acknowledging, admitting that God's arranged things so striving won't work, I wonder if when Olivia started to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, any of you, even though most of you weren't born when it when it happened, but any of you recognise that these words were the basis of a really successful pop song in 1965. You might have heard it since because it's been popular and it appears in some movie soundtracks. Uh, This group called The Birds had this song called Turn, Turn, Turn and it's basically verses 1 to 8 put to song. I want you to have a look at the passage and I'm going to show you just how close the song is. So the song starts off... To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. Then That was the chorus again. And then a time to build up, a time to break down, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. And then the chorus again to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. It goes on. As you can see, it's following the the eight verses really closely but for the chorus, which is just a repeat of the opening verse. And it's the last movement where you get a movement away from Ecclesiastes 3, and it's really powerful. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. See what verse 8 says. The song says, A time for love, a time for hate, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. What's been omitted from the song? Pretty obvious. War, yeah, a time for war. And what's been added after a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. The birds were an American group, and what's going on for America in 1965? That Vietnam War, massive cultural upheaval 
not only loss of, of uh, sons in the war, but it causes massive cultural and social upheaval in, in the US. So it was a great peace anthem, and it still is occasionally totted out along those lines. And it's got a nice tune, and it seems really positive about life, and it's hopeful there at the end for, for peace. It, there's still time. The world goes on, turn, turn, turn. It really captures it really well. The world goes on, turn, turn, turn. Life goes on, and, and it's sort of idyllic. I guess this is why sometimes when I'm doing a funeral and I ask the family to choose a passage for the funeral, uh, some families who have no, um, fault, don't really care about God very much, but because it's in a church and I want them to have a reading, they'll pick on this one and they'll give me Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. But I'll always say, that's great, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And you'll see why as we go on. Because there's... Because one to eight, if you left it there, that's not the point of Ecclesiastes chapter three. The teacher's reason for observing uh, how this world sort of works in a cycle and all these things, and he has these polar opposites, and the idea of that sort of uh, literary technique is that everything in between is assumed. The teacher's reason for it all comes in verse nine. What do workers gain? From their toil. By workers there, don't just think of people in the paid workforce. It's all of you. It's humans. It's peoples. What do we gain from all our toil? All we do to live and strive in our world. The teacher's now going to go on to answer his own question. And his answer is really negative. It's basically people don't gain at all in the big picture. That's the thrust of verses 10 to 11. So verse 10, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has laid a burden on humanity, he says. What, what is this burden? Well, first, you notice there, God has made everything beautiful in its time, all those elements of the totality of life that we've seen in verses 1 to 8, they all have a beautiful fit. There is a time for sowing and, and a time for reaping. There, there is a time for love and there is a time for hate. Uh, all, all the things. Over it all, of course, a time to be born, a time to die. There's a time for everything, for every activity under the heavens. But notice it's under the heavens. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, we've had under the sun. Well, here we have under the heavens. And slightly different meaning there. It reminds us at this point that God's there, that under all these things happen under the God's rule of the world in which people live. That's positive, positive view of God's initiative and rule. Everything has an appropriate or right time in God's scheme of, scheme of things. But there's this big negative, and it boils down to this. We don't know God's scheme of things. So no matter how we try, we can't control and manipulate life so as to get out of it what we desire. We can try, and we might be successful for a time, but there's, there's no guarantees. God has set eternity in the human heart. So he's given us a sense of the past and the future, just like God himself has. I don't think he means eternal life here. Don't misunderstand it. We'll see at the end of this chapter, in fact, 
uh, when we look at it more closely next week, that the teacher's actually uncertain or agnostic about what happens after death. So he's not talking about eternal life so much as the sense of time going on. And because we have this sense of time going on, we desire uh, the things we do to have a permanence. We, we desire to be able to affect time and what happens in the future through our plans and the things we do. But the problem is we can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. How does God control time? And what's going to happen next? If I knew what was going to happen next, I could plan, couldn't I? And, and avoid a bad thing or anticipate a good thing that would help me to achieve my goals. But we're part of the system our life, both good and painful things, are part of this ongoing cycle of activity under the heavens. And we just can't control it, even though we'd really like to. We, we can't discover the key to unlock the mystery. So, you know, the Egyptology, if you've um, been unfortunate enough to have to do Egypt in, in school, then uh, one of the worst terms of history I ever experienced, uh, you... The thing that's really key in all that is when they find the Rosetta Stone, this stone tablet that has written on it not only the hieroglyph, the hieroglyphics that they couldn't understand, but um, words in another two languages. And because they understood those languages weren't dead in the 19th century, they were able to then understand what the hieroglyphics meant and then they were able to use that little stone. It's not very big. It's a chunk that's fallen off. It's a, it's a proclamation of a young king and how great he is. And they use that little stone and they're able to work out the key to all the other hieroglyphics all over the ancient monuments of Egypt. We love a Rosetta Stone to help us unlock the mystery that God has of eternity and how it all works so that we could predict and control the times and make the gains we desire from life. But there isn't. We don't have it. Doctor Who was allegedly not human, but he looked pretty human to me. But he was from a race called the Time Lords who could manipulate time to achieve their desired gains. That was in the world of BBC fiction. In our real world, God has laid on us a great burden. We can perceive eternity, yet we have no control over what happens. We want to be time lords, but we're really only like the frustrated enemies of the doctor who would have to watch on impotently as the time-travelling TARDIS did that silly noise thing and then disappeared from their grasp. The chooks in our backyard at home don't have this burden. The highlight of their day is when they are fed. And I don't think their pea-sized brains think beyond the immediate day. God has not laid eternity in their hearts. They're not trying to plan. They're not trying to make their plan successful in the midst of whatever happens in future. Their joy is feed time. And it is doubled when, like yesterday, I fed them the sort of basic thing we always give them every day, only to discover I should have given them the leftovers in the kitchen, a double feed is a big, exciting day for our chickens. They don't feel, the four chickens don't feel the need to make plans and try to arrange time. They're just scratching and lowering the soil level and responding to the urge to lay an egg occasionally, which has been a great urge recently, which has been fantastic. 
while they wait for the next major feed. Life goes on. But for us, life goes on, but there's a burden there. Why? Why has God laid such a burden on us? Is he a meanie? Well, verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so people will fear him. That verse is saying only God's work can endure, not ours. We, we just don't have the secret to eternity and, can make it, and making it happen. We can't control things as much as we desire it. God can, though, and he's controlling things to even frustrate us. How do we react to this all-powerful God? Well, it's pretty obvious there. God does it so people will fear him. The frustration of life and having a sense of eternity but not being able to really grasp and control it, it's deliberately imposed on us by God so we'll always be able to recognise that we're not God and fear the true and living God himself. When you see that you can't control your destiny, when uh, your plans and th- your are frustrated when they, they can't always work out, when you feel that burden of living in this world and, and seeing the future but not being able to grasp it, the only rational thing is to stop striving to control our destiny, our gains, our desires and acknowledge God. To fear him, which means to take him seriously and, and treat him properly in the way he's over us. To acknowledge he's the creator and we are the creatures. Throughout our series in Ecclesiastes, we've seen the teacher declare life to be, remember Dave shared with us last week, hebel, which means breath or fleeting or futile or vapour and impermanent, unsatisfying, meaningless, a, a chasing after the wind. Nothing lasts meaning we're never really in control as much as we'd like to think. So we can never really strictly gain anything that'll last forever. I hope you can see today that this isn't just a a brute sort of fact of the world, sort of a a natural thing, something that happens to be there without cause or explanation. No, no, can you see? Hebel is a judgment imposed on humanity, a, a condition imposed on the world and especially human beings by God. It's a burden laid on the human race so they will fear him. What then is the implication of that for your striving to get ahead, to control your life, to gain more materially, to be successful, to have a perfect, good, comfortable life? Well, it's just not going to work. You won't actually be successful in gaining all you desire. You might get some success, but then something or someone will come along and pull the rug out from under you. So often that tends to be uh, a great sickness or a great tragedy or having to face uh, unemployment or something like that, some hard thing. The problem is that we can't control time and get what we desire. We can't stop ageing despite our efforts to look 
and keep young. We can't lengthen the good times of, say, friendship or business success as much as the shareholders and the accountant for our business would like it. We can't shorten the bad times as much as the farmers in drought would desire that. We can't predict the future and avoid the dangers. So maybe we should stop making that everything in our life. We should stop making striving to succeed everything that it's about. And, and this is my second point, start enjoying life as God intends it to be. As this talk of God placing a burden on humanity and purposely frustrating us, as I I talk like that, does it make you angry? Does it make God sort of sound like the Grinch who stole Christmas, a mean, angry killjoy? Many people in our society seem like that, and maybe that's what you're thinking right now. Tune in, because there's another way to look at this. The teacher certainly doesn't see God like this. He takes, it, he takes it from the first point that if God is creator, then it's his right to help us recognise that we are creatures, to get the world in the right perspective in our heads. In fact, if you think about it, it's a mercy of God that he reminds us that we aren't in control, that we can't determine our destiny, because then we can look to the one who can, that is, again, to we can fear him and, and treat him properly. Would you prefer if instead we had a God who hid away, left us in ignorance till the final day when he appeared and told us we were all under judgment because we'd ignored him all our lives? You don't want a God like that, do you? That would be hopelessly unjust. Well, the God of the Bible isn't unjust. He sent plenty of messages through the various speakers in the Bible, not least of whom was Jesus Christ. Speakers who have shown us and revealed us God and called us into a relationship with him. And haven't we been enjoying singing about it earlier in in our, our service? This burden he's placed on humanity works well to hopefully make us realise that we're, we're not in control and we can't achieve all the things we try to. There must be something else. There must be another way to live life instead of just feeling the frustration of this burden. As you feel that, hopefully that opens us up to him as we feel our frustration, our limitations and realise we're creatures and we need help. When we do that, we can start living God, living life as God intended it to be, not as something to strive and struggle, but something to enjoy as a gift from God. That's the teacher's conclusion here in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Given God's in control of all the seasons, we have to see everything in our lives as a gift from God. And it's only when our orientation in life moves from striving to gain to enjoying God and his gifts that there is a possibility of a lasting joy, a contentment with the fact that we can eat and drink and even find satisfaction in our toil. That's interesting. It, Up till now, he's been talking about how frustrating it is to live in this world and and toil away. 
But when your goals change from what you can get to enjoying what you have and looking to God to provide your needs, then you can have a contentment. Notice that the teacher's not suggesting that life won't involve toil and work. I'm not suggesting we all go out tomorrow, resign our jobs and just sit around, with, have one long holiday. What he's suggesting is that our attitude to the toil that is the human life not be striving but thankfulness, even thankfulness that we have a life to toil at. You've heard that modern phrase, this stu- and this sounds a bit like it, living in the moment. Now, you can Google the phrase living in the moment for 10 tips to living in the present, like stop holding on to that past possession, be a minimalist, so as to be forced to live in the present, and smile. That's two of the tips. Or how to live in the moment, 11 ways to appreciate the gift of life, like learning to meditate and I was fascinated by this, noticing the smell of your toothpaste. You live in the moment tonight when you clean your teeth. 21 instant ways to live in the moment, but what caught my eye was how to live in the present moment, 35 exercises and tools. The moment had passed before I'd even read a quarter of that article. What's striking about all those tips is how self-centred they are and That's not the teacher's point. He's already observed how God has set things up so we'll be frustrated if we just live for ourselves and leave God out of the picture. His alternative way is that we reoriented our life away from ourselves and mindfulness of ourselves in our situation to see God as the giver of good gifts, food, drink, work, friends, rather than looking for the gain or profit from our own efforts. And so verse 12 again, rather than the self-centeredness of the live in the moment and mindfulness movement, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. There's a contentment here, but notice a new little aspect. We haven't seen this in Ecclesiastes before this, to do good while they live. Clearly, as we acknowledge God's role and rule in our lives, And as we've got to know him better, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as our Lord, we find lots of good to do in their service. Life is best lived, says the teacher, not by foolish self-fulfilment, mere striving for gain in an uncertain world, even if it's gain in the present, but by acknowledging that only God has control of our future and prayerfully depending on him. And then thankfully receiving all he gives us and seeking ways to to do good in his service and the service of others with what he's given us, who we are and our abilities and opportunities. That's how to enjoy life as the gift God intends. Now, I find this really challenging. It's so easy to slip into living as if it's all about striving to get as much of the pie as I can. So what's some practical things we can do? Well, I notice myself, if I let a daily prayer habit slip, then I lose my focus on enjoying life as a gift from God. And I see myself more caught up with the strive and the getting on the treadmill and the anxiety to, to achieve. 
The book club uh, we have here uh, at St Mark's, we just recently finished a book called Enjoying God. And for me, one of the highlights of it was a chapter titled this way, In Every Pleasure We Can Enjoy the Father's Generosity. And it was about how we should stop things we enjoy and thank our Heavenly Father for the things we enjoy. So I try to do that with the ocean pool that I enjoy for my exercise and relaxation, to actually thank God for that. And I try to do that with my, with my family and, and friends, for example, and you, my church. I try to stop and not only just enjoy them, but to actually thank God for them. And as I do that, it helps me, doesn't it, to enjoy... Uh, life as a gift that God has given me. If you want to read that chapter or you want to read that book, two copies of that book I can see from here are on the back uh, in the library up the back. You could, you could borrow them. It's, it's, a, red, it's a, red, a red book. And the good thing is each chapter has different suggestions for enjoying God and it's only, uh, they're only very short. So if nothing else, you could borrow it and just read the one chapter if you're that sort of person because it is chapter three, so if you're one of those people that never finish a book, hey, you will have done that good chapter. It's very good. It's an old habit, but a good habit that we shouldn't despise of thanking God for the things in our day before we eat. That's a really valuable way, isn't it, to see life as a gift. When we do that in our family, and we're not consistent at it, but when we do it, we tend to try and thank God for things in our life. It, it might be our salvation and it might be things we've all been able to work or study uh, in the day that, that's gone. Uh, and what often happens is by the time we do all that, we forget to thank God for the meal. But I take it that he's, it's implied. But it's a good thing to do. I find uh, for me that I have to make sure we keep it on our family agenda because it's so easy to slip off. Maybe that's a leadership you could take in your family situation. Or maybe you can't because of your family situation and you just need to pray it yourself for yourself. It's often very wonderful to watch um, very godly older Christians in a situation where they can't command the table, as it were, as you might in your family, and you notice them pause and you know what they're doing. And that's very impressive and challenging. Actually, as I look out... I'm reminded that where I first um, experienced that was years ago, before I came here, before I knew Angela and her boys. Um, I was working for a week in Albury and I was billeted. I was working with a Christian group, university group, and we were helping the church, a church down there, and I was billeted by Angela's grandma and grandpa and every meal they would pray like that. Angela will be remembering this. And that really struck me. I was very touched by the way they... And they open up the Bible and they have a Bible reading time as well as um, praying and thanking God for things and asking God for things. It helps, doesn't it, when you do that, to help you to have God and realising life is a gift when you're doing that. One of the other ways to uh, help you see life as a gift. You might be able to think them up, share them with me if you do. All this doesn't mean that we won't experience frustration and the pain and difficulty that comes from life being marked by Hebel. Of course we won't, of course we'll experience that thing because that's part of the point. It keeps reminding us that we're creatures depending on God. 
Things aren't controllable and there'll be breath, they'll be impermanent and futile. But when things are hard, we can know that God as creator is ordering things in his world as he sees fit. And we can humbly depend on him even when life doesn't make sense that it'll turn out for the good that God has planned. I want to finish with just a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. If you're a Bible flicker, a quick Bible flicker, you'll find them on page 1006 or 1007. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which is right at the very bottom of page 1006. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's God who, in his mercy and kindness, has saved us through the Lord Jesus. That is a gift. It's not because of what we've done. We haven't worked and earned our salvation. But notice verse 10. Now that that's happened, we're God's handiwork. We've been made in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's, let's enjoy life, uh, not striving and feeling frustrated by that, but let's enjoy life as a gift from God, being thankful for all he gives us and using what he gives us to do the good in his service and the service of others. Let's pray.